Let's open our Bibles to the book of Nehemiah, please. Nehemiah chapter number 2. Nehemiah chapter 2. It was July the 12th when we began. Nehemiah chapter 1, six weeks ago. So let me give us just a little bit of a brief review before proceeding to chapter 2 in our scripture reading tonight. Nehemiah was a Jewish layman living in Persia, about 800 miles from the city of Jerusalem. He's part of the exiles who grew up in Persia. But his heart was with God's people. One day, he asked his brother Hanani, who in fact was living in Jerusalem at the time, but had come to Persia for a brief visit. He asked him how things were in Jerusalem. The answer, of course, was not good. As we studied in chapter 1 together, uh, words like trouble and shame and broken and destroyed. It not only described the city itself, but the state of the people. The people, God's people, the Jewish people, they were, they were distressed. They were demoralized. They were on the verge of disappearing. Nehemiah, of course, became overwhelmed with it all. He was broken for the people, concerned about the glory of God in Jerusalem. So he began praying, and chapter 1 tells us he prayed, and he wept, and he mourned, and he fasted for God's glory to be revived among God's people. And of course, that burden began to spread into many people joining Nehemiah in a regular prayer meeting, a prayer meeting that went on for about Four months praying, asking God to forgive and restore and make his glory known in Jerusalem again. So the chapter, chapter 1, it, it closes with Nehemiah praying in such a way that he was willing to be part of the answer to his prayers. And so now we open up at chapter 2 and this corporate prayer meeting has been going on for four months and we see how God begins to intervene. Nehemiah chapter 2 and verse 1, in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, Why is your face sad, seeing you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. And then I was very much afraid. I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? And the king said to me, what are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, with the queen sitting beside of him, how long will you be gone, and will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given me to the governors of the province beyond the river that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple and for the wall of the city and for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I asked. 
The good hand of my God was upon me. Then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king has sent with me officers of the army and horsemen. But when Sembalat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. So I went to Jerusalem, was there three days. Then I rose in the night, I and a few men with me, and I told no one what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me, but the one on which I rode. I went out by night by the valley gate to the dragon spring and to the dung gate, and I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. Then I went on to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. Then I went up in the night by the valley and inspected the wall, and I turned back and entered by the valley gate and so returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing. And I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were to do the work. Then I said to them, you see the trouble we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. But when Sembalat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant and Geshub the Arab heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us and said, what is this thing that you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Then I replied to them, the God of heaven will make us prosper and we his servants will arise and build. But you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. The subtitle of our message tonight is Leading with a God-Given Vision. Leading with a God-Given Vision. One of the helpful aspects of the book of Nehemiah is that it teaches us a great deal about godly leadership. Now, I know this is super obvious, but without leadership, uh, nothing gets done properly. Leadership in every facet of life and through every generation of time is absolutely essential. Leadership in the world, leadership where we work, leadership in our homes, leadership in the church. Leadership is absolutely essential for excellence and success in God's kingdom purposes. But when we talk about leadership, we're not so much referring to leadership as just a position, but rather leadership as an influence, as an influence. That is what leadership is. Leadership is not just a position. Leadership is influence. In fact, when leadership is relegated to just a position, then one will see his role as simply a supervisor or worse, an entitled dictator. But when it is understood as influence, then one's truest leadership will be fueled by their character, their principles, and of course, their godliness. And that's the kind of leaders we want to be. We don't want to be leaders who just aspire position. We want to be leaders who are focused in on godliness and, and character and principles so that by our influence, we can impact others 
for the cause of God's kingdom. Nehemiah was a true leader. In fact, what I want us to do tonight is look at five aspects of his leadership that strengthened his hand for the work God had put on his heart to do. That's the reference that we are given. They strengthened their hand for the work. And the reason why they strengthened their hand for this work is largely in part due to the leadership, the spiritual leadership that Nehemiah brought to the Jewish people. Five aspects of leadership that I want you to note tonight. Number one, his prayers were not an excuse for inactivity. His prayers were not an excuse for inactivity. And we've looked at his praying in chapter 1, and the timeline between chapters 1 and 2 is about four months. So for four months, that tragic report he received from his brother Hanani has been heavy on his mind. Not only is he praying, but he's weeping, he's fasting, and now many other Jews in Persia have joined him in the same. Now, for many of us, we often fall on two extremes. We either act and never pray, or we pray and never act. I wonder if maybe in your life tonight, in whatever realm that God has put you in, that would describe your demeanor. You either act and never pray, or you pray and never act. Remember, at the end of chapter 1, Nehemiah willingly made himself available to God to be part of the answer that they were all praying for. Look at it again in verse number 11 of chapter 1. And Nehemiah is praying. He says, O oh Lord, give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Of course, the next line tells us what man Nehemiah is referring to. Nehemiah says, Now I was cupbearer to the king. So he's praying. He's praying for God's glory to be restored, for the people to be revived, and he's willingly making himself available to be a part of the answer to his prayer. And of course, to help us make sense of all of this in God's providence, we see that Nehemiah was a cupbearer. Now, a cupbearer was a high-ranking official in the king's court. A cupbearer's primary role was to serve wine at the royal table, but it came with an interesting requirement. Because kings were often targets for death by enemies from without and traitors from within, a cupbearer was ultimately responsible for tasting the wine before serving it to the king. And he did so to ensure that the wine had not been poisoned. So if the wine had been poisoned, the cupbearer was going to fall flat instead of the king. It was kind of a safety net, so to speak, for the king's Desire to live long. Cupbearer had to be loyal to the king, though. And the king had to know that he could trust him. So this is not just any position in the court. This is a one of close-knitted reliability on both parts. So, so, so Nehemiah's prayer in relation to his position as cupbearer was a prayer for opportunity. That's what he's praying for. 
Lord, give me success. Help me to prosper. Grant me mercy in the sight of the king. Allow my position to give way for an opportunity to do this work that you've put on my heart to do. That's what he's praying for. He's praying for a door to be opened. He's praying for a conversation to be had. He's praying for an action to take. And his praying did not cause him to be inactive. In fact, the sincerity of his praying was revealed by the action that he was willing to take. And so we come into chapter 2, and one day we see Nehemiah comes before the king bearing a sad countenance. Now, that's problematic from the get-go. If a cupbearer wanted to live, he didn't do this. He didn't come before the king with a sad countenance. And Nehemiah even says here that I never came before the king looking this way. He knew. That if the king suspected at one moment of time that his disposition or him being out of sorts in any degree could very very well mean that a mole is on the inside. And maybe Nehemiah is a part of this. But apparently, the burden for God's people had become so heavy on Nehemiah's life that it was affecting his ability to work. Have you ever carried a burden that heavy before? That it's affecting your ability to accomplish ordinary, everyday tasks. Your countenance is not the same as it typically is. Your thought process isn't always equating like it normally would. The things that you usually can snap through in a hurry, it's taking you all day to accomplish. And many times it's because we are distracted by things that have a burden to us. That seems to be the case here with Nehemiah. Nehemiah is so overburdened by his prayer for the people that is affecting his ability to work. So the king asked him, verse 2, why is your face sad seeing that you are not sick? He even says that this is nothing but sadness of the heart. Something's wrong with you, Nehemiah. Why are you sad? Now, notice what he says next. That is what Nehemiah commentates for us. He says, then I was very much afraid. I, for one, appreciate the intentional inclusion of that phrase. I know some of us may think he shouldn't have been afraid because God was with him. God put this in his heart to do. Why is he so fearful? But, but, but I'm okay to admit to you that there is much, even in the work of the ministry, there is much that scares me. There is much that I fear. There is a lot that at times keeps me afraid I think in this moment, Nehemiah, even though he knew God had put this in his heart, even though he was burdened for this, he was still afraid of how this could potentially go. The king wasn't on board. If the king didn't believe him, that could be the last day he lives. But Nehemiah, even in his fear, told the king why he was sad. He saw this as a a divine opportunity. 
And that door continued to open up wider and wider. The king asked him, look at it in verse 4. What, what are you requesting then, Nehemiah? And Nehemiah said, look, the reason I'm sad, it's not you, king. Long live the king, all right? There's nothing wrong with the wine. Nobody's turned against you. It, it has nothing to do with you. It's my people. My people. The gates have been broken down. They're in derision. They're suffering. They're hurting. God's glory has been diminished. And so the king, Artaxerxes, says, what, what, what then are you asking? And once again, we see Nehemiah praying. So I prayed, he says in verse 4, to the God of heaven. You see, Nehemiah was moments away from asking permission from the king to go help God's people in Jerusalem. But he also recognized that he served the king who is over all kings. <laughs> And so this moment of prayer is just another character trait of Nehemiah's spiritual relationship with God. He's approaching the king for permission, but he's reminding himself that there is a king who is over this king. So he prays to the God of heaven. He's afraid, but he prays. He's scared, but he prays. He's fearful, but he cries out to God. He believed God could do great things, and so he asked the king to grant him permission to go to Jerusalem that he might revive the city. And verse 8 says, the king granted him what he asked. And why? Because the good hand of my God was upon me. Now, that's a very powerful phrase. The good hand of God was upon me. He's acknowledging that God sovereignly provided this opportunity and God was going to receive all the glory for it. I wonder tonight, are you truly committed to that which you pray for? I want to ask it again. Are you truly committed to that which you pray for? Are you tonight seeking to be used of God to see your own prayers answered? Wallace Ben said, most of us have had far more opportunities than we've had the courage to accept them. You see, Nehemiah's prayers were not an excuse for inactivity. He prayed, but he looked for opportunities. He prayed, but he let his requests be known to the king. He prayed, but he's also strategizing. If we are to lead with a God-given vision, we cannot allow our prayers to be an excuse for inactivity. I want to encourage you tonight. Look for and act upon the opportunities that God brings into your life. Pray and then act. Praying for a job? Go fill out job applications. Praying for God to help your finances? Then do some things in your finances that will help make things work out for your own well-being. Praying for your health? Then go see a doctor. Prayer is never an excuse for not doing anything. That's Nehemiah. Secondly, the second thing that we see here about 
spiritual leadership with a God-given vision is that he carefully evaluated and examined the need. He carefully evaluated and examined the need. Let's skip over to verse 11. Verse 11, Nehemiah says, So I went to Jerusalem. I went to Jerusalem. And the first thing we see him doing is resting. He rested for three days before he began his work. Did you notice that? So I went to Jerusalem for three days. Now, I, as much as anybody, want to be extremely careful that we're never reading into Scripture. That's called eisegesis, what we put into it. That's not how we interpret the Bible. We interpret the Bible through exegesis, to, to, to bring out of it, to bring out what's already there. So, so forgive me if you think I'm walking a very tight rope tonight. I don't intend to be that because I do believe there's some proper exegesis through that. So I want to be careful just to let you know where my heart is on this. But there's something here of significance that I want to draw your attention to. Scripture's giving no instruction. It's just simple information. Nehemiah rested for three days, then took action. He went to Jerusalem. He did nothing for three days. And then he took action. Now, I, I do not say this as one who has mastered it, but as one who continually needs to be reminded of it. Rest is necessary for usefulness. Rest is necessary for usefulness. Whether it was related to the burden he had been carrying for months, the long and overwhelming journey to get to Jerusalem, the possibility that it might have been a time of Sabbath when he arrived, or whatever the reason, whatever it was, Nehemiah rested before taking action. And I just want to encourage you, church family, tonight, that God has built in rest for our lives for a reason. Because when we go, 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 and never come away, we have a tendency to make things a little bit worse in our lives. Can I just encourage you on what a counselor encouraged me on? When you're tired, don't make important decisions. When you're exhausted, don't start any new projects. Don't assess your spiritual condition, and don't assess someone else's spiritual condition. Rest your mind, rest your body, then get to work. Now, I feel like maybe I've gone a little too far on that, but I've just said enough, that's my piece, that's what I feel like's happening here. He got to Jerusalem, it's been a long journey so far, he rested, he wanted to make sure he was thinking absolutely clearly before he went out and began to take action. That's what Nehemiah did. And the first thing after he rested was to carefully evaluate and examine the situation. He did it quietly. Verse 12 says, I told no one what my God had put into my heart to do. He did it secretly. Verse 13 says, I went out by night, that is, in the middle of the night with just a few of his trusted men. Verse 16 says that no one knew what he was doing, not even the people that he was soon to call together and begin the work. He did it secretly, and he did it methodically. 
from verse 13 all the way through verse 15, he inspected, he evaluated, he planned the work. Instead of coming to the people and presenting just a problem, he's going to come to the people and present a solution to the problem. It's tremendous leadership, isn't it? Seeing the need and taking the lead. Bringing solutions, not pointing out problems. Carefully evaluating and planning instead of haphazardly throwing something together at the last minute. There's enough about Nehemiah and prayer in the first two chapters that I believe with all my heart he did none of this without prayer. Seeking the wisdom of God for the work God had put in his heart to do. Listen to me, church family. Proper evaluation in every area of our life. Proper evaluation and examination is necessary in leadership, especially in the work of God. We don't want to put a band-aid on our problems. We don't want to throw something together without counting the cost. Leading with a God-given vision requires careful evaluation, careful examination. This is a part of our discipleship. Jesus said, who goes and builds a house without counting the cost, without making preparation, without examining the situation? We see great leadership on Nehemiah's part. His prayer was not an excuse for inactivity. He carefully examined and evaluated before taking action. Write down number three. His his motivation was the glory and calling of God. His motivation was the glory and calling of God. Verse 17. Then I said to them, the Jews, you see the trouble we are in, how Jerusalem lies in the ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem. Verse 18. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good. So follow the sequence here. Nehemiah prayed. He looked for an opportunity. He walked through that door of opportunity. He carefully evaluated and planned a solution instead of just presenting a bunch of problems. Then, then he initiates action. Action. But before we take a look at his action, I think it's important we see the motivation for his action. Motivation is important, isn't it? In fact, it's more important than the action itself. I'm going to say that again. Your motivation is more important than the actions you take themselves. And Nehemiah was not motivated by selfish ambition. He was not motivated by praise. His motivation was the glory of God. His motivation was the calling of God. Notice what he says again in verse 12. God had put this in my heart to do. God put this in my heart. I'm doing this because God called me to do it. He put this in my heart to do it. And I'm doing it because it will manifest the glory of God, not the glory of Nehemiah. See, see, look at this. His burden became his calling. For God had not only put this in his heart, but verse 8 as well as verse 18 says, the good hand of God provided the way. And in the end, everything he desired to accomplish in Jerusalem was for the purpose of restoring God's glory among God's people. I want to encourage you tonight, before you move forward 
with anything in front of you, be sure it is God who has put it in your heart to do. Be absolutely sure that it is not motivated by selfish ambition, that it's not motivated by pride or finances or conveniences or comforts or self-glory. Make sure it's something that God has put in your heart to do. And whatever you do, do it for the glory and the calling he has undeniably put on your life. If you do it for any other reason, you will eventually, you will eventually disconnect from it. His motivation was the glory and calling of God. Fourthly, he rallied the people to take action. He rallied the people to take action. Again, verse 17, come, let us build. Come, let us build. Verse 18, let us rise up and build. He, he rallied them around the need. The need, verse 17, you, you see we're in trouble. Things aren't well. Verse 1, it's described as trouble again, shame, brokenness, despair. You, you see the trouble. He rallied them around the need. He rallied them around the vision. The vision, what's the vision? That we would no longer suffer derision, that the glory of God would return to us. He rallied them around a solution. And what was the solution? Verse 17, let us build. Let us build. That is the solution. Let us rise up and build. He rallied them around the glory of God. Verse 18, the hand of God is upon me for good. And he rallied them around the providence of God. He even throws in here to them just so that they know that God has paved the way for this. Verse 18, the king has spoken to me. You see, everything he's doing, he's kind of getting them, he's, he's getting them glued in on the need and the vision and the solution, the glory of God and the providence of God. God has made this possible. And because of all of this, let us together rise up and build. You see, the most important part of Nehemiah's work was that it was a God-given vision. That's the most important part of it. It was a God-given vision, and a good leader will rally his family. He'll rally God's people. He'll rally those whom he serves around the vision that God has given them to accomplish, not our own dreams, but God's vision. He prayed. He looked for opportunity. He walked through those doors by faith. He made a plan, and then he mobilized the people to do the work, but none of this. None of this would have happened had the good hand of God not been on Nehemiah's life. Think about it. What started as a reviving of Nehemiah's heart has now spread to a reviving of the people around him. And that is why we see them together in verse 18. Strengthening, not just Nehemiah, they. They strengthened their hands for the good work. Now this is where every fruitful work of God begins. Don't seek first to be a leader of people. As Gypsy Smith said, draw a circle on the ground. Stand inside of that circle and ask God to revive everything in the circle. That's where we start. We start in our own hearts with the work that God is doing inside of us. Then we will be in a place where God can use you to lead others. 
rallied the people to take action. His motivation was the glory and calling of God. His prayers were not an excuse for inactivity. He carefully evaluated and examined the need. And then finally, number five, he stood humbly and confidently in the face of opposition. He stood humbly and confidently in the face of opposition. Many men have said this through the years. I always try to find the appropriate source, but Google's an interesting thing because not only do you hear things from a large number of people, but then you search them on Google and you find out that a large number of people credit themselves for saying it. So I don't know if it originated with Dr. Bob Jones Sr. I don't know if it originated with Adrian Rogers. I'm not even sure it was Macaulay Culkin. I don't know. But it's great. The doors of opportunity swing on the hinges of opposition. The doors of opportunity often swing on the hinges of opposition. Steve Jobs said it like this. If you want to make everyone happy, don't be a leader. Sell ice cream. Well, Nehemiah understood this. And he understood this from the very beginning. In verses 9 and 10, it is noted in passing that two men by the name of Sambalat and Tobiah were greatly displeased. And this is so fascinating. They were displeased that someone had come to seek out someone else's welfare. That's what they're bothered by. They're bothered at the fact that Nehemiah actually wants to help a people who are suffering. And then we come to verse 19 and we see it again. Look at it there in verse 19. But when Sembalat the Horonite, and Tobiah, the Ammonite, and Geshev, the Arab, heard of it, they jeered at us and they despised us. One way or another, one way or another, Satan will always oppose the work of God. And he will always use people. Sometimes those whom we are most surprised by to prevent God's work from moving forward. Sambalat's an interesting name. It's a Babylonian name, not a Jewish one. Extra biblical sources suggest that he was the governor of Samaria who obviously had issues with God's people. He wasn't a religious man. Historians tell us that he was loyal to the Persian regime. Regime. And we have Tobiah. Tobiah is actually a Jewish name. And what's interesting about Tobiah is that his descendants were among those in the Jewish community back in Ezra who could not, under Zerubbabel, prove their descent. They couldn't prove that they actually belonged to the Jewish line. So there existed this division, this animosity toward true Jews by these descendants of Tobiah. And Tobiah was one of those. And he became governor of Ammon. And then we have Geshem. Geshem was an Arab who possessed more power than Sambalat and Tobiah combined. He ruled a number of Arab tribes, including Moab and Edom. Now, what we learn here at the very beginning is that they were all three eager to stop the Jewish people from experiencing success. 
So this may be the first time we see them in the story, but it certainly won't be the last. And what we have to be careful for is to make sure that we are falling on the right side of God's work. We want to make sure that we are in the camp of those who strengthen their hands for kingdom work. Not that we're among the Sambalats and the Tobias and the Geshems who are willing to do whatever it can take to prevent the work from going forward. I wonder which one of these you resonate the most with. How about in your family? But what if God does something in the heart of your child that goes against your dreams for them? What if they come to you and say, you know, instead of that big university here in state, I, I want to go to a Christian college, a Bible college, a seminary. I want to, I want to give my life for the cause of the gospel. Are you a Sembalat, a Tobiah, a Geshem? Or do you say, hey, let us strengthen our hands for the work God has put in your heart to do? I want to put out my kids' dreams, especially when those things are birthed from the heart of God. What about in ministry, in your marriage? Do you fan the flame so it can ignite with greater intensity, or do you come with a bucket of water? Oh, that'll never happen. That'll never work. I don't even know why you're wasting your time thinking about that. You can't do that. J.I. Packer said it like this. In local churches, any leader who pours cold water on visionaries as soon as they propose something new risk becoming a new Sanballat, Tobiah. Geshem. But so it is in leadership. So it is in life. Anytime we set out to do anything for kingdom purposes, opposition inevitably, inevitably, will make its way into our lives. But notice Nehemiah's response to them. Verse 20. We close here. He says, the God of heaven will make us prosper. And we, his servants, will arise and build. He remained humble. He remained confident as he kept his focus on the favor of God. You see, his humility was grounded in the reality that this was God's work, not his. God will make this thing prosper. God will do this. He's put it in my heart to do it. He's provided the way for it. I know God is going to bring this to pass. We should expect opposition. But with God's help, we yield that opposition to him, believing that it is ultimately his work, that we are his servants, that there will be disappointments, there will be hurts, there will be intense pressures. But we also believe he fights our battles for us. Well, this is the first mention of them, but we're going to see them again because that's how opposition works. It's hard to put that booger back in the ground. So what's God leading us to do here? 
God wants all of us to lead with a God-given vision. A God-given vision. And let that work start in us. Draw that circle. Step in that circle and say, God, do something here in this circle. And then let us commit ourselves to leading and influencing others for gospel kingdom purposes. God's going to use Nehemiah because Nehemiah was willing to be used by God. And that's all that he wants of you and I. Just to be used of God. And you don't have to be on the king's throne to do that. You can be a cupbearer, a layman, a career man or woman who just says, God, do in my heart a work that you have put in there for me to do. May God help us to lead in this capacity. Let's bow our heads together for prayer.